Well, happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. I uh, suppose my dad is watching right now. I'm very grateful. Thank you, Mel. I, I wrote this morning as a tribute to him, and I, I think I'll read it now to him on behalf of all the fathers in the room and to those of you that have fathers that you're missing today or celebrating. I put a picture up and said, this guy, if there's a better father, I have not met him period. His own father's death in 1960, just a few months before my dad turned 16 years old, forced him out of childhood to become a man, and what a man he has become. He was the 11th of his parents' 15 children, and I might add the first one born at the hospital. He was 10 pounds, 11 ounces, and he was on the small side for Mitchell babies. By the time I met my grandmother, she was immune to pain. He was the 11th of his parents' 15 children, three of which died as infants. He was the youngest of seven brothers who made it to adulthood, three of which are still living. William, they called Bud, Mike, they called Junior, Donald, they called Billy, and Ted, they called Sonny. I really like the way we do names in the South, don't you? <laughs> They're all gone now. After his father's passing at the age of 56, his older brothers provided much fathering for him through the years. While he has been my mountain for, for 49 of those years, for 72 of them he has remained their little brother. The two still very much alive brothers, my incredible uncles Ronnie and Philden, still call him Stevie. He grew up poor in terms of money but rich in terms of love. He and his five remaining siblings still are together constantly, even now planning the next of their annual trips to the Smokies. He fell in love when he was barely a teenager with a rich girl from the other side of the tracks, marrying her when she was 16 and he was 19. For the last 53 years, he's consistently claimed that she is the best thing that ever happened to him and he doesn't know how he got so lucky. By the time he was 21, he was blessed with his namesake. At 23, I came along, and then as he and mom always wanted, an angel was born to them four years later. Two boys and an angel, he always said. His work ethic, his love for my mother, his devotion to his children, his integrity, his kindness, his honesty, his consistency, his humor. It occurs to me this morning that the scale in my mind for all of these has always had him as its absolute ten. I cannot say anything truer than that last line. To this day, no one has ever made me laugh more, try harder, or feel better than Steve Mitchell. For a kid who never had enough money to eat lunch at school, instead of feeling sorry for himself and becoming a victim, he chose another path. He chose a path of gratitude and drive. What a journey it's been since that day a 15-year-old boy named Stevie Allen Mitchell sat on the ground beneath an old tree in his backyard and wept after hearing his daddy had a tumor and wasn't going to live. What a man he became. What a man he is. What an honor it is to call him my father. And whatever part of fathering I've gotten right, I learned from him. Please live to a hundred dad. Happy Father's Day, Steve Mitchell and all the fathers in the room. Let's give it up for the dads. So I want to tell you a story today, or at least start a story, 
that's probably going to stretch into the next few weeks. Uh, the telling of this story is one of what? What happened? What happened? Oh, dismissed the fourth and fifth graders. All right, kids, y'all are dismissed. And the junior high, I suppose, are already gone, Rich. Okay. All right. Let's reboot and start again. Seems like after all these years, I would finally get that right. So this story is a profound story. Uh, its central character is a fellow by the name of Joseph. The supporting cast in this story uh, is composed of his 11 brothers, his um, father, Pharaoh down in Egypt, and a few other people like Potiphar and his wife, uh, high up down in Egypt, are in the story as well. The story uh, we find in the book of Genesis, uh, the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, it's set, I believe, about 17 to 1800 years before Jesus even lived. It was written into our text probably in the 7th century before Jesus, having been carried in oral tradition and having grown in oral tradition amongst the Hebrew people for hundreds of years before it was even written. The story of Joseph is many things, not the least of which it is a story of family. It is a story of family dysfunction. A dysfunction that can and does beset all families. It is a story of betrayal. It is a story of forgiveness. It is a story of hope. It is a, hope, a story of despair and ultimately a story of restoration. Though thousands of years old, this story, as is many of the stories, or as is true of many of the stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, in spite of the fact that it's almost 3,000 years old, it is, for me, a part of that body of evidence that over and again reminds me of what inspiration means as it relates to our sacred text, the Bible. Though I have read it and heard it hundreds of times, no doubt, as I hear it again, as I tell it to you over the next few weeks, I'm sure it will move me. I have no doubt it will move me to my very core again. So we're going to read in the biblical text. I'm reading so much verse that I just decided not to put it on the screen because it's almost just too much. I'm just going to do like story time and I'm going to read it to you and then stop and talk. If you want to follow along in your phone, <laughs> you can turn to Genesis, the 37th chapter. It is a new day, Tim, when remember, you used to always turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the 8th chapter. Now we say turn with me in your phone to Genesis 37. And we're going to start with verse 1. Joseph is 17 years old. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. Remember, Jacob is the third generation of what we call the patriarchs. Abram who was named Abraham, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob. This is that group of people who, following Jacob's great-grandfather, Terah, came from Ur of the Chaldees at the top of the Persian Gulf, made their way through the Mesopotamian, settled in the Levant, there on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, and these are the people that became the Hebrews. So, verse 2 says, this is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph. I actually like the way, I think it's the old King James says, this is the story 
of Jacob, Joseph. And no truer words can be said of a parent than immediately, as the story of their life is told, their children are immediately named. This is the story of Jacob's life. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Billah and Zilpah. Remember, his father, Joseph's father, Jacob, had two wives and two concubines. As Frederick Beekner said uh, concerning Jacob's wives, I think this is kind of a, an understated brilliance, Jacob's wives were two sisters, remember, Rachel and Leah. And Frederick Beekner said, it is seldom advisable to be married to two women simultaneously, especially if they happen to be sisters. But that was his lot. And these two sisters had handmaids, Billa and Zilpah, and between the four of them, they had many children for this guy. So there he was, Joseph, 17 years old, shepherding the flock with his brothers. And as he shepherded the flock with his brothers, evidently they did something that was not right, or at least he didn't think it was right. And verse 2 says, Joseph, this younger brother, brought a bad report of them to his father. Verse 3, very interesting now. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children. On Father's Day, here's a lesson. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a long robe of sleeves. Remember what we called that growing up? It was the coat of many colors, right? So he had made him this coat of many colors. Verse 4 said, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. So poor parenting on the behalf of the father set the children up for resentment. When his brothers saw that the father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peaceably to him. So the kid really doesn't have a chance right out of the chute is the way the story is setting up. He is obviously privileged. His father is showering him with gifts that the other brothers do not get. And to compound that, he's a tattletale. So this is not setting up well for him. It's not going to bode well for him. Verse 5 adds to this. Once, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I want to pause there for a minute, just thinking about the wisdom of literature. Joseph had a dream, and Joseph made a sophomore mistake. Joseph believed that everybody would be as excited about his dream as he was. Have you figured out in life yet that everybody's not as excited about your dream as you are? As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12:15 said that in relationship with one another, we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Yesterday, I was thinking again, I think it was Ron that actually said this to me, Lee. He said, we... He almost said it in a loaded way, but he said, we are tremendous with one another when we're hurting, watching everybody rush to Carol's side. And I immediately thought of this verse. It is a litmus test of good spirituality, true Christianity, 
if you do weep with those who weep, I'll tell you what might even be a little bit more of a litmus test. If you're able to rejoice with those who rejoice. We often find it easier to grieve with the grieving than we do to rejoice with the rejoicing, don't we? The real litmus test of loving your neighbor as yourself is when you can really honestly be happy for them. When you can be happy in your own sadness when you can look at their joy and really find joy in it. Joseph had a dream and he made the mistake of thinking that his brothers would be happy about his dream and so he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. And then he said this to them. Now you're, you're going to cringe as you hear the nature of the dream. He said, listen, older brothers, to the dream I've dreamed. There we were, all of us, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf of grain stood upright. Then your sheaves all gathered around it and they bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, so not only is he asking them to be proud of his dream, he's asking them to be proud of a dream that obviously is going to make them subservient to him. Okay, note to self, another good lesson in the story here. Spiritual gifting does not always equate with spiritual maturity. He was an incredibly gifted young man from the favor of his father, not just the coat of many colors, but he was spiritually gifted. God had tabbed him and God had now downloaded a dream to him. But again, spiritual gifting doesn't always equate with spiritual maturity. The best thing for him to have done with that dream is to have pondered it in his heart. You remember that in the story of Mary? The angel speaks to her and tells her this incredible story of how God is literally going to, divinity is going to come through her womb. There's this incredible story that the shepherds, when they heard it, they couldn't contain. They ran into the city telling it to everyone. And yet, the encouragement to Mary from the angel was, as real as this is, as powerful as this is, and as much as this narrative is going to change the universe, it would be best for you to keep it to yourself. It is great wisdom to sometime hold experiences and giftings and insights to yourself. There are times those dreams, those magnificent narratives are not to be told or not to be shared and the Bible says that Mary actually took that to heart and I love how the text in Luke says Mary treasured these things in her heart and thought about them often. I can identify because there are two or three experiences in my life that are probably the most profound that I have ever had in terms of interchange with the divine but they are so incredibly impossible to tell as much as I want to tell them every time I tell them I do them disservice Sandy, they're almost too holy to subject to someone else's scrutiny. They're almost like the experience of Paul when he went into the third heavens. It was such an ineffable thing. He said, I betray it to even try to speak it. There are times giftings and experiences and intuitions are not for you to go running, running into the city and running to your family exclaiming. Sometimes dreams and visions, sometimes these incredible gifts are just for you and you are to ponder them in your heart. But Joseph was gifted, and at 17, he was not mature. And like many spiritually gifted 
people, humanly gifted people, young in life. I often have said these people who have incredible giftings, whether they play out through entertainment or religion or art or academics, these precocious children who are endowed with gifting like Joseph, theirs is a hard way because they have, a, they have what I've often described as a NASCAR engine with 850 horsepower, but they have a Volkswagen chassis. And as impressive as the engine is, and as much as this horsepower revs and draws attention, without the braking and the suspension and the handling around it of maturity, often, whether it's entertainment, again, or art, or education, or religion, these children end up on e-entertainment specials, wondering where are the different strokes kids now? Where are the Partridge kids now? What will become of Miley Cyrus one day? Where gifting on the young is not always the easiest thing. And Joseph proved that well here. He told them the story of his dreams and they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. Verse 9 says he had another dream and he told it to his brothers and he said, look, I've had another dream. This is a brilliant young man, right? These brothers are hating him deeply because of his dream. He has another dream and he heads headlong back to the same place and he tells it to his brothers and he said, in this dream, the sun and the moon, which was his father and mother and the 11 stars. Now, dad and mom are added to it along with you, representative stars. Now all of you are bowing down to me. He's not even cryptic with it now. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you've had? Even those closest to you, even those who don't fall to despite and hatred, do not always have the capacity to share the excitement of your dream. There is nothing more heartbreaking than being hated by brothers and sisters for your dream unless it is being rebuked by your father and mother for your dream. What kind of dream is this that you have had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers and bow to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Smart man. Now, verse 12 says his brothers about that time went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And as Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Joseph said, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers in the flock. Bring word back to me. So he sent him on to the valley of Hebron. He met a man in Shechem and asked him where his brothers were, and the man said, they're in Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan, and they saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say to our father that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what become then of his dreams. But when Reuben, the oldest of the boys, heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. 
throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. He was playing on a superstition of theirs. There was this superstition going all the way back to the time of Abel. If you shed blood, that life will spill into the ground and call out to God. So Reuben was not saying, don't let us kill him. Reuben was saying, let us kill him without the shedding of blood. But he was only ostensibly saying that because Reuben had another plan. He was interceding for the boy. Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him. Reuben said this, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves. They took off his favor, they took off in their mind the embodiment of his dreams, they took off the sacrament of his life and they threw him down into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And down in that pit he sat down in the dank dark dungeon of that pit he cried a 17 year old boy my son's 18 and I think about the psyche of a 17 and 18 year old boy lowered down into a pit the pit psychologically that he was lowered into was even worse Lee he was wrestling with the fact that his brothers not only were they jealous of him not only did they despise him but now they counted him so unworthy of life that they decided to take his from him and in that pit as he cried no doubt saying please brothers no doubt he called their name trying to appeal to some emotion memories of days gone by Naphtali Gad Simeon Levi anybody Dan Judah, please. But there were no pangs of conscience around the rim of that pit. The Bible said that as they sat there musing about their brother, satisfied with what they had done, coating the coat of many colors with the blood of an animal, conspiring to go back to the father and to put the coat of many colors vengefully, resentfully, spitefully in his lap, telling him that it's his son's. The favored one. The Bible says that as they sat there, Judah spoke up and said, you know guys, this is a waste. Perhaps Joseph heard it. Perhaps he heard as Judah seemingly began to intervene, but as he listened, he realized this was no intervention. Judah said, there's absolutely no reason for us to waste this life. Because even now I see Midianite slave traders coming through, as this is a favored slave route and they're on their way to Egypt this kid's worth some money to us and there's no reason to miss out on it Joseph is called on to grab hold of the rope the same rope that lowered him down now he is called on to grab onto and the only promise at the end of that rope is that you're not going to die but we're going to put you on an auction block and we're going to show you how many pieces of silver you're actually worth to us uh, what a story of what a story of how we commoditize one another, how we use one another. What a story of unlove and of broken relationships. Thinking to himself that perhaps slavery in Egypt was better than death, the boy tentatively grabbed hold of the rope 
And no doubt as they pulled him out, rubbing his shoulders against the rough rock that made up that well, no doubt three or four times he thought to himself, should I just let go? But hold on, he did. The dream was lowered down into a pit, and the scripture later would say, the prophets would say, and the Lord was with him there, although it must not have felt like it. Because although you can kill dreamers, you can't kill the dream. MLK Jr. was certain proof of that. The dreamer himself, though, was lifted up out. He was put in the back of a Midianite cart with other slaves, God only knows who. And as he reached his arms through those wooden bars, appealing one more time, the wheels of that carriage began to creak slowly as his brothers counted the money. And he watched that not only was he not worth 20 pieces of silver, he was actually only worth about one two-thirds pieces because when it was divided up, that's what each of them got. And he looked back at people and he realized the price that was on his head. He looked back at 17 years of relationship with these 11 brothers and realized that it was all reduced just to this one final price, the tragedy. Down into Egypt he went and the Bible said he was put on an auction block. And again, the Bible says that Joseph was sold into slavery. And this time in the book of Genesis, it is that the Bible records the fact he was sold into slavery. And listen, the Lord was with him. Down in the pit, and God was with him. Sold into slavery, and God was with him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, the resolve is not that you remove death. The resolve is thou art with me. The resolve is not always the relief of the circumstances, Scripture teaches us. The resolve that is in the midst of the circumstances, God is with us. In the book of Corinthians, Paul would later write of this, and he said that God is very good to us, and he will not allow us to go through more than what we are capable of going through. You know why? It's not because God measures how strong you are, and then... Life brings things across God's desk and God has to meet them out to you based upon your strength. That's not it at all. God is not sending tests into our life based upon God's estimation of who we are. That's not how our strength is vouchsafed. That's not how our success is vouchsafed. No, it's the exact opposite. The writer of Deuteronomy said it this way. He said, as your days are, so shall your strength be. I grew up my whole life thinking God liked playing games, shooting bullets at my feet like I was a court gesture just to see how strong I was to entertain the divine. But the writer of Deuteronomy said, it is not as thy strength is, so shall thy day be. God doesn't assess your strength and then say, well, I'm going to send this day to you. No, not at all. The reason, Kelly, you know you're going to make it is because as your days are, so shall your strength be. The reason you know you're going to make it is because whatever day comes your way, the strength of God is going to be yours. Your day is not measured by your strength. Your strength is measured by your day. And God always gives sufficient grace. That's the lesson of Scripture here. That's why Paul said God will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able. Why? Because, he said, in every temptation, in every test, in every test, in every trial, in every pit, in every slavery, in every betrayal, in every circumstance, God will not allow you to be tested above what you're able. Because in that test, God will provide strength. And the strength is not the removal of the circumstance. The strength is the grace, the more grace, the sufficient grace, Paul called it. And listen to this. 
God will provide, Paul said, a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Did you catch that? Cassie, he didn't say God will provide a way of escape so you don't have to bear it. He said God will provide in the circumstance a way of escape that you may bear it. In other words, this is not an escape where you abscond from the circumstance. This is an escape where you run inward into yourself and you find the escape is not external, it is internal. Thirty eight hundred year old stories. And these truths weave their way not only through these books that we call the Bible, but they weave their way two thousand years later into our life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. He was put down in a pit, and God was with him. He was put into slavery, and God was with him. And even there in the midst of those things, he found a way of escape. But the escape, ultimately, is not external. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. My Father and I will make our abode with you. Where I am, you may be also in Side. The escape is inward. Well, there on the auction block, there was this bigwig there in Egypt named Potiphar. And Potiphar decided to buy this kid. And so for a nice sum of money, he bought this strapping 17-year-old kid. And he immediately put him in charge of things at his house. And the Bible says that this man Potiphar and his family and all the household began to recognize there was something special about this kid. Of course there was, because God was with him. He had a presence about him. He had something about him that made Potiphar take notice. People just seemed to, uh, people just seemed to respect him. So before too long, this slave went from being just a menial slave in the fields to being the supreme servant in the house, the butler, the cupbearer of Potiphar's house. And he was blessed. He was there for nine years. At the age of 26, after successfully and faithfully serving this guy as a slave, the Lord was with him. At the end of that nine-year period, the reward he got was that Potiphar's wife, a lonely woman because Potiphar probably worked too much, began to get an eye for Joseph. This strapping 26-year-old kid was just too much for this woman to bear, and she began to try to allure him. Joseph, with great integrity, every time rebuffed her and said, How could I do this to my Lord, your husband? How could I do this to myself, my father's name? How could I do this? And every time, with every appeal, he rebuffed her. Finally, one day, hell hath no fury like. She became quite bitter at these off-puttings. And the Bible says as he turned away this one final time, showing his integrity and respect for not only her husband, but for her as well. She grabbed hold of his coat, took it off of his body, and as he left the room with great integrity, she began to scream. When the servants rushed into the room, asked her what had happened, she said, that young man Joseph just tried to molest me. They went, they took him. In change, they brought him before Potiphar, this man that he had served faithfully. And one more time, he was betrayed. You would think that if God were with people, there wouldn't be so many pits and slaveries and betrayals in their life, but that's not how the story always goes, is it? 
And as he stood there, incapable of defending himself, he heard Potiphar essentially say, you're lucky I don't kill you today. And he escorted him off to prison, and there he was put in prison. For the next four years of his life, he would live in prison. But as he was put in prison, again the Bible says, you guessed it, the Bible says, and the Lord was with him. And into prison he went, and the same thing that Potiphar had recognized earlier, now the keeper of the prison recognized, and he was made the chief orderly. He was given privilege that none of the other prisoners had, and along with those who were paid to do so, he literally was given, he was given the honor of running the prison as a prisoner himself. I've always wondered if the time down in that prison cell wasn't a soul-making time for him. No, I don't wonder that. I actually believe it must be true. I think pits and betrayals and slavery and imprisonments, unjust, albeit, I, I think these kinds of experiences can be, either be that which embitters and turns you into a victim or they actually can be those soul-making moments where you lie there on the cot and you grit your teeth in the dark night behind the bars and you say, if ever I get my hands on those brothers, you toss and you turn, you sweat the sheets until they are drenched, you dream about that moment when you stand before them with their neck in your hands. You think if I ever, and you toss and turn and you steep and you baste in that resentment and bitterness, and God somewhere sighs and smiles and weeps. Oh, Joseph, you're not ready yet. As the heat is on in that oven, ultimately in that dark place, you realize that the dreams of choking your brothers, the dreams of excoriating them with words, those dreams are having no impact on them, but they are eating your soul to its very deepest part. And one night in those sweaty sheets you roll over and you let it go. And interestingly, as you let it go, as you let go of this demand for revenge and retribution and justice and fairness and equity, as you let go, as you detach from that ultimate outcome that you just have to have, interestingly, it's at the moment you let go that the path actually begins to open in your life for that encounter to actually happen. But interestingly, interestingly now, the path opens for that encounter but the you that you will put on that path, the you that you will take to that encounter is now a changed man. You look back in retrospect in your life and you realize that it was a great gift to you that that path did not open earlier because not only would you have destroyed them, you would have destroyed yourself. The Bible says that there were a couple of fellows in prison. One was the baker and one was the butler of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, in probably whimsy and caprice, 
didn't like something they had done one day and had them thrown in prison. And while they were in prison, the two of them dreamed dreams that were so vivid that they began to discuss them amongst the prisoners. When Joseph overheard the dreams, again, this spiritually gifted young man tapped into his spiritual gifts. And as he listened to the dreams, he told them that he had the interpretation. For the cupbearer, the interpretation of his dream was that he was soon to be restored to Pharaoh's house and all privileges plus some would be returned. As the baker heard him give this favorable report to the cupbearer, to the butler, the baker said, what about my dream? And Joseph said, I'm sorry to tell you that your dream will not end so well. Within days, the Pharaoh will have your head and your life will be taken. Well, needless to say, the way Joseph interpreted the dreams is exactly what happened. The cupbearer returned to prominence and the butler, or the baker rather, was killed. On the way out of the prison, Joseph, this good man, looked at the cupbearer and he said, See what I have done for you. Remember me when you get before Pharaoh. Tell him about me. Get me out of here. And the cupbearer looked at him and said, you betcha, big guy. Thanks for all you've done. I won't forget you. And guess what happened? He immediately forgot him. I can hear the singers of Hee Haw right now. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep and dark depression, excessive misery. Two more years, he sits down in that prison cell. And one day, Pharaoh is disturbed. He's had a dream. It's a dream of seven fat cows coming up out of the river and immediately seven skinny cows coming up behind them and eating them. It was macabre. It was freighted. Immediately after that dream, he went back to sleep and he had another dream of seven sheaths of grain full and and bountiful, heads of grain rather, full and heavy. And immediately seven skinny stalks of grain rose up and ate them. He woke up from the second dream and he was so bothered he called for all his magicians and sorcerers. And after calling for them, the Bible said they came. He told them the dream and none of them could interpret. The cupbearer, two years removed from prison, overheard what was happening and said, I remember a guy commoditized again, not cared for, commoditized, not cared for, useful, always utilitarian people in relationship with Joseph. It's always what he could do for them, never what they could do for him. Joseph is called up out of prison. He stands before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph said, it's not me, it's God that will tell you the story of this dream. This dream means that Egypt's about to fall into a time of terrible famine for seven years. But before that time of famine, it will go through a period, a gracious period of bounty and harvest. For the next seven years, as this, as this bountiful season happens in Egypt, you will do well to store up for the years of famine that are coming. Pharaoh looked around the room and was astounded. Looked back at him and said, who better to help me operate during this time of bounty and famine than you? Pulled him up out of his prison clothes and prison stock 
and did not only put him as a servant in the house, made him vice president of the entire land of Egypt, put a signet ring on him. A coat of many colors, betrayal, heartbreak, pit, slavery, injustice, imprisonment, forgotten, commoditized. And now Joseph in a whirlwind looks at a ring on his finger and a purple robe on him and the Pharaoh says, lest you mistake me and anybody else mistakes me, there is nobody in this land except me that's over you. And Joseph immediately begins to navigate the next seven years. From 17 to 26, he's a slave. From 26 to 30, he's in prison. From 30 to 37, he is navigating the prosperity of Egypt. He is storing up in their silos enough grain, not only for Egypt, but for the better part of that world to survive the seven years of famine coming. At the end of those seven years of bounty, the harvest begin to fail. The skinny cows come up out of the river and the skinny stalks of wheat ensue. Two years, he's 39 years old. Two years, nine years into his reign, scarcely shy of 40, the Bible says that the famine had extended up across Goshen into the Levant, into that area we know as Palestine, the place where Joseph's father, Jacob, and the 11 brothers live. The Bible says the famine became so great that Jacob looked at his boys, these boys that had betrayed Joseph all those years earlier, and he said, boys, we're going to die here if we don't get help. I hear there's a wise man down in Egypt. Little did he know. I hear there's a man down in Egypt, and I hear that Egypt has stored up grain, and I hear that they're selling it even to countries not their own, people not their own. And he sent his ten boys, but he kept home the youngest. Oh, the pathos in this story. He kept home the youngest, a boy by the name of Benjamin, who was born after Joseph to that beloved wife, Rachel, the two sons of his old age. The boy who was the only mitigation of his grief at the loss of Joseph. He looked at the ten brothers and said, you can go to Egypt, you can be in harm's way, but I will not risk this boy. He even explained, I have already lost one youngest boy, I can't lose a second. You would think that that would have made his brothers bitter in the vein that they had been in, the character of their life, they would have become bitter at Benjamin, but the story doesn't bear that out and we'll come to that later. The ten boys go down into Egypt, and the Bible says they were given permission to stand before Joseph. Every person who made this appeal would stand before Joseph. He controlled and micromanaged the entire distribution. And when these ten men came into the room, he had not seen them for 22 years. He had dreamed down in that prison about this moment. He had dreamed about the exchange of words. Never in that prison had he dreamed the imbalance of power would shift this remarkably. And now here those who once controlled his life, those who stole his life, those who, who betrayed him sore, now with that shift of the balance of power, 
they stand as broken men. You see, there are two sides to forgiveness. There are two sides to betrayal. There's the wounded and the wounded one. Jesus gave us some insight there when Jesus looked at those who were betraying him and said, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Jesus gives us some insight here to what the writer of Ecclesiastes said when he said, with all you're getting, get understanding. He gives us insight here to what Stephen Covey said when he said, before you go to war with your enemy, find the place where they weep and watch them there. You might not want to go to war after you've seen their tears. Jesus gives us insight into this when he, looking down from the cross at those who had murdered him, said, Father, forgive them. And with all of heaven chorusing and ringing out, why in the world should they be forgiven? Jesus explained, they do not know what they're doing. Ultimately, the greatest victim is not the victim. The greatest victim is the one who perpetrates, Jesus believed. That is hard to imagine. It's hard to swallow. Even now, it sticks in my throat like a chicken bone caught sideways. But in the grand providence of God, it's true. The ultimate harm is to the one who harms. Now, but the power shifted. Not immediately, but eventually. Seems to be the logic. But the power shifted. The Bible said Joseph looks at them. They did not recognize him. He must have thought to himself, sure, you don't recognize me. You never stared at me. You never looked at me with affection the way I looked at you. Eyes that look with affection remember well. But eyes that use forget. And more pain drips down into that wound as he realizes you still don't know who I am. You still haven't seen me, but I know you. And the Bible said he begins a process. Oh my God, he begins a process with these brothers. A process that if you read it, not even superficially, but as you read it through the first time, you are quite sure in the ensuing chapters, as this narrative and this plot begins to thicken and unfold, you are sure, man, he's got them now. He's getting them now. Payback. Well, you know what payback is. He's got them where he wants them. He looked at them and he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you grain. I'll give you grain. But I know you. You're not here just for grain. I don't trust you guys a bit. So before I give you anything, I'm going to put you in prison. He herds all ten of them into a prison. And as I read that story, Mandy, I think to myself, when he looks at them on the other side of those bars, he has to be thinking, my, how the tables have turned. I'm thinking to myself that gratification is filling his heart as he looks at them now, scared, wondering if they'll ever get out understanding that they're unjustly accused. I wonder if he wants to scream at them and say, how's it feel to be unfairly imprisoned, fellas? And Chris dangled the key in front of them. That's the way the story seems to read at first. After three days, he comes to them and he says, 
You know, in the beginning, I told you I'm going to send one of you back to your old father with food. He doesn't deserve to die, and your kids don't deserve to die. And I'm going to keep the other, the other nine of you here. But I tell you what, God is my witness. I'm a conscientious man. I'm going to let nine of you go, and I'm going to keep one. Pick amongst yourself. I don't know who, how they did it. Maybe it was a short straw. But the brother named Simeon was picked, and behind the bars he stayed, while the other nine, with bags filled with grain, head back to their fathers. On their journey, one of them goes to the bag to get out some grain to feed the animals, and when he does, he's shocked as he looks and sees the money that he had paid for the grain on the top of the grain. And immediately they are frightened. The other brothers open their bags, and the same is true of their bags. The money that they had paid is there. And they know that they are never going to be able to go back to Egypt for more. And even now, the Pharaoh may have recognized this thievery, a thievery that they hadn't done, a thievery, that, a thievery they couldn't understand. Maybe even now, his servants are on their way to get us. They were terrified. But they make it home to Jacob. Jacob laments that one of his sons, Simeon, is missing, but the family lives for another year on the grain. At the end of the year, the grain runs out. This is where I'll run out of the story today, and we'll come back next week and pick it up. What a story it is. As the grain runs out, one day they're sitting around, and Jacob says, you need to go back to Egypt, and you need to get more grain. And the boys take a deep breath and they say, well, Dad, there's something that we didn't want to tell you. We hope the famine would cease and this would be all the grain we needed and we would never have to tell you and you would never have to face what you're facing now. And the father said, what are you trying to tell me, boys? And they said, Pharaoh asked us how many brothers there were. It was a strange thing. We told him there were 12 but one was gone and the other is the younger brother back home. It's a strange thing when he told him that story we don't know why but when he told him there was one that was gone, one that was dead, his eyes glistened and he had to leave the room. We heard him weeping. We didn't know why. <laughs> but he told us if we ever come back for more grain that we have to bring that younger brother with us. We had to bring that younger brother to face the caprice of this one that imprisoned us and then kept Simeon. Or he said he won't give us any grain. And that old man named Jacob leaned back in his chair with the visions of Benjamin's brother, that full brother born to Rachel. He remembers a coat of many colors. He remembers the last time 22 years ago when he saw that boy named Joseph whose eyes were so similar to Benjamin's, whose voice had the same tone tenor and Jacob said no I've already lost one youngest boy I'm not going to lose a second they live for a while like that until the children begin to starve and their ribs begin to show through their flesh finally Reuben and Judah stood in front of their dad and they said dad we're going to die anyway look at Benjamin he's going to die the only chance we've got, we could have been there and back twice now, the only chance we've got is if you let him go. 
And Jacob let out a lament and cried and wept and said, I will go down to the grave. And said, you can take him. To be a, a bit of a spoiler and tell you where we're going next week. As Benjamin came into the presence of Joseph, the Bible said when he saw that boy, that boy who shared his eyes, that boy that looked just like his mother that he hadn't seen in almost a quarter of a century. The Bible said again, he went out of the room and they heard him in the other room weeping, sobbing into a pillow. He comes back out. He feeds them an incredible dinner. Strangely, he puts five times as much food on Benjamin's plate. And at the end of that celebration, he tells them, you can go home and you can take all the grain you need, but you can't take him. Bitter, vengeful, retributive, unforgiving, no. Testing, hoping, believing, longing, yes. Because he knew that these boys, isn't it something how we fix people in our mind in that place where we last saw them? Isn't it something that we even fix in our mind, Kathy? those people who hurt us we fix them where they last hurt us and we move on with our life and we suppose that in our pit and in our prison and in our slavery that God is only doing a work in us we don't think Tim that it just might be that God's working on some other hearts a long way away the very hearts that hurt us Joseph was not a bitter man or he would have never had this opportunity Joseph simply wanted to know that his brothers had changed. And he knew, Mary, that 22 years before, if he would have said, you can go, but this younger brother that is now the coat of many color kid, he is now the one your father's, you know your father loves him most, this kid's gotta stay. 22 years before, they would have said, out of here, sorry kid, we don't care about dad's heartbreak. But when Joseph looked at them and gave them the opportunity to be the same humans they were, he found out that God hadn't only worked on his heart because when he told them the boy stays, Brian, they wept and they cried and they said, no, we have a dad who's already lost one boy. He can't lose a second. And Judah, the one who said, let's sell him and get some money out of him, steps forward and says, keep me. Take my life, but don't do this to this boy and don't do this to my dad. Reuben pushes him aside and says, no, brother, take me. And all the brothers stand behind and said, keep us all, but don't break our dad's heart again. And when Joseph saw that not only was he a changed man, but the men who had hurt him we're changed men. I tell you how you know you've truly forgiven someone. It's when you want them to be forgiven. When you want them to be well. When you no longer want them to hurt the way you hurt. 
when you want them to experience good even though they didn't give that to you. And the Bible said when he saw these brothers clamoring to save the life of his younger brother, the Bible said he cried out and said to all the Egyptians, get out, get out, get out. And his brothers looked at him as though he were a crazed man. And he took off the robes and the, and the grand headwear that he wore. And he looked at them through teary eyes and said, it's me, brothers, it's me. It's Joseph. And as the Bible said, their hearts were stricken with fear and they knew that they were dead men. They fell to the ground. He looked at them and said, get up. It is well. And as they stood trembling before him, he looked at them. And down, Shannon, in that prison, he had rehearsed this moment. He knew every sharp-tongued thing he was going to say, every bitter, waspish, mean thing he could say. Hello, boys. How do you feel now? But instead, his heart had so healed, even as theirs had healed. And as he looked into their eyes, there were no waspish words, no words of vitriol. He looked at them through tears and said, I just want to ask you one thing. Is Dad still alive? <laughs> I tell you how you know you're forgiven is when you finally get your chance for revenge all you can think about is love so next week we'll pick up don't you love the Bible that's a 3800 year old story guess what it's about two months old and two years old and two days old and two hours old for some of you there's richness I got good news. I hadn't even got to the good part yet. Go, forgive, and be good to one another.